Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. My name is Mark, if I haven't met you yet. Uh, lovely to see you here at church. If I haven't seen you since Christmas, happy Christmas, happy New Year. I hope the year's been great so far. Uh, not too long for things to go pear-shaped yet. Just give it time. Uh, but I hope it's been great and a great summer. We are thinking together through January about this idea that we can live a life without lack which if you stop and think about it, is an extraordinary idea, isn't it? Uh, that, that you and I can actually live a life where we are free from any kind of lack, free from fear of lack even, free from worry, free from anxiety, free from uh, the fear of death even, free from worrying about the, the lack of physical capacity and agency as our bodies age and disease and lifestyle choices and genetics come back to bite us. Uh, is it possible, right? I mean, we, we make these claims biblically and we read them in places like Psalm 23, but how does that work? I mean, look at the psalm, this very well-known psalm. I started the series last week with a, a long discussion on this psalm, and I only realized how long it was when I went to edit the sermon to post online, and there's a lot in it. Uh, and the meditations this month and the insights into the psalm come from the work by Dallas Willard, uh, a series of talks he gave on Psalm 23 that are available in a book that I emailed. I emailed the link on Amazon out to you uh, for the grand total, I think, of $1.99. You can buy the book, and it's, it's absolutely worth reading. Uh, it's, it's a phenomenal a little work on Psalm 23. But this is what David says, right? The Lord is my shepherd. You go, yes, that's wonderful. I lack nothing. And that's what we're going to think about. How do you and I live a life where we lack nothing? Is that possible? What are the means to achieve this? And last week, over the course of about 40 minutes, I made the point that at the absolute center of this life without lack lies this truth in verse 4. In the middle of this, uh, this little verse, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. How can David, not just, not just well-fed, well-watered, experiencing all the abundance of life here, but live a life completely without fear of evil and death and anything going wrong? He says, well, the key is, you are with me. And so our lives are about learning to live life with God. And as I live life with God... I live life in the abundance of abundance. And if you're visiting church this morning and you're not so sure about where things are at spiritually and checking God out and you've maybe been on a bit of a journey, uh, I want to say to you that this is what our church is about. This is what Christianity is about. It's about the wonderful promise that you and I can live a life of absolute abundance with God. And, uh, and church is about a community of people who help each other live that way and experience God in that way. So uh, come along for the journey. We're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to think today, though, about uh, a couple of points that build on this argument of a life with God. And, and I'm going to make two points. They're pretty simple. And the first point is we've got to answer, if we're going to think about and live a life without lack with God as our great shepherd, the first thing we need to understand is who we are, who we are as human beings, and I'll explain why in a moment, what our purpose in this world is, 
And then the second thing we'll think about is, well, what is the, what is the role of evil, and in particular Satan, in robbing us of the life without lack that God intends for us? So who we are, who you are, and then what is the role of Satan in actually robbing us of this life without lack? How does that work? Why, why is it, in fact, the case that so few human beings live a life without lack? Why is it that we find it so hard to live with God? Um, and so we read in the, we heard in the psalm, in the psalm, didn't we? This is the question that Psalm 8 raises, says, God, this amazing work that God does, incredible beauty when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. The big question is, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Like, who are you? Who am I? We're, what's, what's our place in, uh, in the whole scheme of things? Why would this magnificent creator who can just speak the word and create the Alps and the Himalayas and the depths of the sea and the human genome and just create such magnificent vastness, why would this magnificent God give a fig about you or about me? Like, really? (laughs) and, And you see, this matters enormously when we come to consider whether we can live a life without lack because... Uh, If we believe that we really don't matter that much to God, it's going to be very hard to believe that he's going to be our great shepherd who will give us everything we need. So we have to establish how God thinks of us, what our plan is, what God's plan is in the world for us. And we go back to the start of the Bible. We won't go through the whole Bible in the uh, next hour or so that I have to unpack this. Uh, God creates a world of good, Genesis 1 and 2. Go have a read of those creation stories, foundational stories in our culture. God makes the world, and it's incredibly good. And what does he do at the end of creation? Well, he puts human beings in this world, and he puts us as the pinnacle of creation, as the, all of creation moves to this point, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And then he makes you, and he looks at you, and he says, you are how good? Very good. Very good. You and I are very good. We are indeed precious, and we are wonderful. Here's uh, how Dallas Willard puts it. What good is man? Quite apart from what the Bible says, we know the answer. We live as though we know the answer. We believe that people are valuable, but why? Why are you valuable? Why are you something that ought to exist? And why is it right that others should help you exist and reach your potential? And why would the magnificent God who created the universe want to be in a personal relationship with you and be your shepherd? Well, because... He made you as the very pinnacle of creation, as a being whose purpose was to uh, experience his love and experiencing his love and intimacy and relationship to then look after the world for him. We are, here's a little summary, unique spirit-infused beings made in a special relationship to live with God, trusted with his power to work with him and each other as we govern the earth. That's it. Like, I mean, there's a whole lot more in that statement, isn't there? But that's who you are. 
That's who I am. And that means, friends, that you and I are precious and wonderful. We are precious and we are wonderful. And when God looks at you and when God looks at me, he sees that we are precious and wonderful. Now, uh, where do you and I see that instinctive experience of the preciousness and the wonder of another human being? Well, we see it when a a mum cradles her newborn baby, don't you? There is, in the holding and the cuddling and the gazing upon a newborn child, this spiritual experience of seeing, as it were, the essence of humanity, the preciousness, the wonder, the vulnerability of this little being. And you don't have to twist a mum's arm to actually see how precious and wonderful that child is. Now, of course, we lose that sense of the preciousness and wonder of beings as we grow older and uglier and, you know, all the, the, the little innocence of the baby goes away. But this is the point the Bible makes. When God looks at you, he sees and feels about you the way a mum looking at a newborn infant sees and feels about a newborn infant. That's, that's God's engagement with you. So then when we say God is our great shepherd who will meet our every need, it's entirely believable, isn't it? Like a mother will do anything possible to meet the needs of her little newborn. You don't have to twist her arm to do that. The baby cries and mum's there and dad's there. It's instinctive. Every fiber of your being is oriented towards the beauty and the preciousness and the wonder of this little infant. And the Bible says that's actually how God engages with us. Uh, which, if you stop and think about it, is extraordinary. And it changes everything. Not just about how we experience God, about how we experience other people. How we experience ourselves. <laughs> right? Uh, Dallas Willard, uh, he has many little sentences in his books that you read and you go, wow, that's uh, extraordinary. Here's one of them. He said, I find it curious that we often speak about people thinking too highly of themselves, particularly here in Australia. We, we are, we're a country of tall poppy syndrome. You're a, you know, we don't like people thinking too, you know, they've got tickets on themselves, you know. He says, but listen, I, we, we often speak uh, about people thinking too highly of themselves. I don't think, says Dallas Willard, I've ever met a person who thought highly enough of himself. I want to suggest the reason I and you struggle to trust God, to meet our needs, to live a life of abundance, is I don't actually think enough of myself. I don't realize how precious and wonderful I am to God. So I don't think he's going to be instinctively oriented to move towards me to meet my needs. Now, here's another thought, hey? Just work with me on this. Isn't the reason we treat each other badly because we don't think highly enough of each other? Like, if I really understand how precious and wonderful you are, I would never do anything to damage you. I'm, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we never meet an ordinary person. There are no such thing as ordinary people. We are all extraordinary beings. Now, if I understood, if I only glimpsed 
your preciousness to God, your intrinsic value, and, and, and I was full of wonder at that, I would never do anything to damage you, would I? I would only ever be, be full of a desire to, to see you flourish and the very best come out over the long term. And guess what? I would have that same attitude to myself. And God only knows we need that. We engage in all kinds of um, what is actually self-damaging, self-sabotaging, self you know, sort of self-destructive behavior in all kinds of ways. And if only we knew, if only we knew that when you look in the mirror, you're seeing a being who is glorious and wonderful and precious in the eyes of God and the very pinnacle of creation. Nothing else in the world compares to your wonder and your glory. Isn't that amazing? So that's who we are. And we are made... To, uh, to live in this way and then to do good in the world out of this. This is how Jesus puts it. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Dallas Willard says that one verse encapsulates why there are people to shine, doing good works and glorifying God. And it's an active process as we live out our lives in the world before God in such a way that people see the goodness of our lives and acknowledge God as the source of that goodness. It's what we're here to do. So we're here to live with God and to shine, to do good, to work with God, to bless the world, to change the world, to heal the world. And as we do that, God says, I'll be your shepherd. I will be with you every step of the way because he knows that you can't do it by yourself. I can't. I can't run my own little life by myself, let alone anyone else's, let alone the world. I need God. So if that's the case, if we're made precious and wonderful, the very pinnacle of creation, and if God, if God is absolutely, completely, utterly committed to our well-being, to being, being with us, why? Why is there such lack and evil? What's gone wrong with us? And what's gone wrong with the world? And... And here's an important thing, to, important point to make. You might have noticed it in the thread of this argument already. Um, pretty much everything that has gone wrong with the world starts at the level of ideas or what we, how we think about God and about ourselves and about the world. The system of ideas is the realm where evil starts and then works through those ideas into our hearts and then from our hearts into our actions. So if I don't understand how much God loves me, I'm not going to trust him. And if I'm not going to trust him, I'm not going to live in his way. And I'm going to rather say, well, I've got, to, I've got to make my life work myself. Now, that's a set of ideas about my value, about God's trustworthiness. And what the Bible says is that uh, that, that realm of ideas and how we think, that is the realm in which Satan works most powerfully to accomplish evil in the world. So Dallas Willard says, if we are to know the abundant provision of God's unlimited resources, we must also understand how Satan works to rob us of that experience. So uh, I'm going to ask two diagnostic questions. You don't have to raise your hand, though you can. First question is this. 
How many of you, on a day-to-day -day basis, live a life overflowing with joy and peace because you are consciously aware of the abundance of God's blessing in your life and you never lack anything? How many of you really live like that, moment by moment, day by day? Just joy and peace in everything and an abundance of abundance of all God's blessing in every bit of your life. Can I see a hand? No, no, okay, no hands. Well, maybe a little hand. Okay, so now, let me ask you the follow-up question. How many of you know the ways in which Satan is responsible for robbing you of that experience and making sure you don't achieve it? Do you know Satan's strategy to stop you living that life? Raise your hand if you know Satan's strategy. A handful, a couple of hands. Great. Okay, so what we're going to do really simply is, from Scripture, show us Satan's strategies to rob us of this experience of God. And there's a lot more to be said about this, and um, I won't try and say it all. I mean, I might, but I won't succeed. Um, and your capacity to hear will, will finish sooner than my capacity to speak, so we'll try and constrain my capacity to speak. Um, Here's, what, here's the importance of it. Our understanding of how things are. Remember last week I talked about Willard being a phenomenologist, that the key to life is to understand the way the world really works. Like we can understand the nature of reality. So he says this, our understanding of how things are must include belief in the devil and knowledge of his character and intentions. If you know enough about him and understand him, you will find that you can have faith in him too. People who engage in explicit devil worship understand this. They know it to be true. But we don't need to worship Satan, but we who do not worship Satan also need to have faith that he will do exactly what he is intent on doing, and you'd better be ready for it. Now, particularly if you're visiting and you're not particularly religious, you might go, ah, this whole devil demons business sounds a little wacky, doesn't it? She, mind you, it's not as unpopular in our culture as it used to be, perhaps, to talk about this and think about it. Uh, we, we got an email last week in the office from uh, someone, an atheist in our community. He said, I'm an atheist, but I just wanted you to know that I'm really concerned about the number of your office, 666. I thought, I thought that's just, isn't that cool? Like, I don't believe in God, but I'm really worried about you because you're opening yourself up to satanic influence. I thought that is what a great starting point. Uh, C.S. Lewis makes this point. Here's a quote from the Screwtape Letters that Satan's greatest strategy to wreak havoc in our lives is to cause us to think that he doesn't exist. And the way he does that is by filling our minds with comic book figures uh, or images of what the devil is like. And if I don't realize what Satan is doing um, and I, don't, I discount his existence, I'm powerless to counter his strategies in my life. And I actually have to confess, I think that when I look at the church in the West, I think Satan's had a field day. Because <laughs> by and large, we, we don't realize how he's affecting us. And we're not aware and we're not wise. And, and then we find that we are in all kinds of trouble because we don't live uh, the way the Apostle Paul says or the author to Ephesians in, six, in Ephesians 6. It's so important. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If, we, if we're going to follow God, we also need to understand that Satan really exists. Now, it's really a moment's thought will help us see why this makes so much sense of our experience. Like, the greatest evil in the world is caused by non-physical things, non-material things. Another way of putting it, the greatest visible evil that works out in the world happens on the basis of invisible forces. You say, how so, Mark? Well, think about it. Uh, our bodies don't just spontaneously erupt in evil. What causes us to do evil to other people, to harm others? Our ideas. What we think. What would cause someone like a Stalin to, to set up and preside over a system that could massacre tens of millions of his countrymen? That's a whole set of ideas. Ideas that people weren't intrinsically valuable. I, a paranoia, fear. Ideas that the end justifies the means. Ideas that uh, there's this great dialectic of history, and so it doesn't matter if millions die because there are going to be another few million that come along, and you can work through this uh, process of history, and you'll all get to utopia in the end, and Stalin will be the dictator on top. Now, how did that happen? Through a whole set of ideas. It happens all the time. If you have an affair in your marriage, you're unfaithful. How does that happen? Your body doesn't spontaneously engage in an affair. It's a set of ideas. My partner's not satisfying. I'm entitled to a bit of joy. It won't really hurt anyone. No one's going to find out. We're two consenting adults. I'm sure it'll be okay. Those are ideas. And in the realm of the invisible ideas, there can be a spiritual power because those ideas take root in our minds, lodge in our hearts, and then uh, are acted out. And the Bible says it's in that sphere that we need to be very aware of how Satan is at work because he is powerful. He is nothing less than a fallen angel. Here is a little description of Satan, the early years. Isaiah 14, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Satan was a created being who ruled the world uh, with God, but then decided he did not want to be uh, a servant of God. He wanted to be like God. He ascended to heaven, tried to put himself uh, enthroned on the Mount of Assembly. He wanted to take God's place in the universe. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That's what Satan tried to do. But he's been brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And, Satan, and so Satan now hates God, has been in rebellion against God. How is Satan most going to hurt God. He's going to do it by hurting those whom God most loves. How do you hurt a parent? Well, if you can have a crack at that child. In my life, nothing has made me as angry 
or as scared as the fate of my children. The thought of someone injuring or harming, bullying, teasing, hurting my child is enough to provoke all kinds of feelings in me. And, and so it is with God. And so Satan has a crack at God through us. Now, how does he have a crack at us? Well, here's the thing. Satan can't make you or I sin or do evil or good. Nobody else, no one in the world can make you do evil or good. Only you and I can. We freely choose, right? Think about this. No one, we only ever do what we want to do. Should I say that again? You and I only ever do what we want to do. And, and so Satan can't make you sin in the same way that God can't make you do good. Right? How do, so, so how does Satan make us sin? Well, he has to attack us at the realm of our ideas, and in particular, our ideas about a certain set of desires that we have that come from God, but that are a a locus of temptation in our lives today. And Satan is going to lie to us about those desires. He's going to lie to us about how those desires can be fulfilled. He's going to deceive us. And, he, and by lying and deceiving us, we will freely choose to do evil. And that's what Satan loves. And we will wreak havoc on ourselves and on those we love. And ultimately, Satan hopes we will undo God's great plan. So, here are the three weapons of temptation that Satan uses today. And I'm going to do a little table that summarizes really the whole, pr provides an overview of the whole Bible uh, view of temptation and desire. Uh, on the, on the, your right, yes, uh, we see the, desire, the world, the system of the world, which is described for us in 1 John. Uh, do not love the world or anything in the world. That The world is a system of ideas set apart from God. Uh, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust or desire of the flesh, the lust, desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Okay, so you can have eternal life, you can live with God, or... You can live out the desires of, uh, of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life, and that will lead you into a path of destruction. So this is what it is. We have desires of the flesh. Now, that, when you hear that in our culture, we think of sex, but it's not just sex, though it is that. It's, it's our needs. The desires of the flesh are this yearning that I, I need food, I need water, I need self-actualization, <laughs> I need all kinds of things, and I've got to have those things, right? And I desire them. Now, it's not wrong to have those desires, but it's very wrong to be ruled by them, and the place of those, those desires is how Satan tempts us. We have the desire of the eyes. That is, we, we want to look at things that are beautiful, and we want to be seen to be worthwhile and valuable human beings. We want to make the judgment about how the world works. I, I look at the world, and I go, that's good, that's bad. And I want others to look at me and go, he's good, he's not bad, he's important, whatever it is. And then I have the pride of life, which is my desire to be in control. And this, if you look back through Genesis 3, go have a look, if, you, if you're not sure how this maps out. Have a look during the week on Genesis 3 and see how the serpent tempts Eve. 
here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and what does the serpent say to Eve? This is really good for food. This will meet your needs. And you don't need God to do that. You can grab it and eat. And so what does Eve do? Eve looks and she sees that it looks pleasant to the eyes. Eve says, you're right. I can choose. And I want this because it's lovely. And what does it do? Well, Satan says to Eve, this will give you the capacity to be wise. This will give you control over the world. You'll know how to make life work. And you don't need God. You don't need God to have power in the world. You can have it yourself. Now, what's really interesting, in Jesus' life, we see Satan attacking him in these exact same ways. Go and read the uh, early chapter of Matthew's Gospel and look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He starts, his, he starts his ministry. He goes off and spends 40 days fasting in the wilderness, at the end of which the Bible says he was hungry and Satan came to tempt him. The temptation came in three ways. He said, Jesus, just say the word and you can turn these stones into bread. So what's that? Jesus, you have a need, a desire of, of the flesh. Just meet it. You don't need God. Stop with this trusting God business. You can make sure that your life continues. And then he says, Jesus says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm not going to do that, Satan. Then he says, well, listen, why don't you go jump off the temple? Because Jesus, no one, no one really understands what a great Messiah you are. You don't look very impressive. You're just wandering around the desert. You're not going to accomplish very much then. Why don't you go jump off the temple and the angels will come and rescue you and then everyone's going to go, wow, what an amazing Messiah. I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to make God make me look good to myself and to others. The desire of the eyes. And then Satan says, but hang on, if you just bow your knee and worship, I'll give you, you can rule the world. I'll give you political power and glory. I'll give you control. I'll give you agency. I'll give you power in this world. And you know what, Jesus, you don't need your father in this. You can have it now. So, how does Satan attack you and me? Well, he says, listen, Mark, you, God's not going to meet your needs. So, 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 you know what? You're hungry? Go get some food, man. You want status? Go get that status. You want sex? Go get that sex. You want money? You, you go earn that money. You need it. You need to be in control. And, and it's interesting, it's not just that he, he attacks our desires, but, but actually, if, if these desires start to rule us, they fill us with fear, don't they? How so? Where does fear come from? Well, I become, I become terrified that, that I'm not going to have these things. I become scared. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to have what I need to meet the needs of my flesh. I'm not going to have the love that I need. I'm not going to have the food. I'm not going to have the money. I'm not going to have the status. I get scared of the lack. And I don't trust God with the lack because Satan's told me God's not trustworthy. Satan's told me it's all up to me. Satan's actually told me no one else can be relied upon, so you'd better make sure you get it. Now, if it's all up to me, I'm going to be scared because I know how inadequate I am. So I'm driven by fear. My life is characterized by disappointment. And I inevitably use people. Because guess what? You, 
You want your needs to be met. You want to look good in the eyes of others. You want power and control in the world. And so I'm a threat, because I want that as well. <laughs> so I misuse you and I mistreat you. And Satan has a field day, because we don't, he's telling us all the time, God's not going to do it for you. God is no great shepherd. You can't, you know, here, Satan, in, in our, if you're religious, as many of you are, you're here at church, you say, well, God, sure, trust God, for, trust God for your ticket to heaven, right? Okay, this is how we sometimes present the gospel. God is like divine insurance. He's your ticket to heaven. Trust God to get you into heaven, to pass the pearly gates, give you a life of glory then. But, oh, my goodness, you can't really trust God today. right? I mean, if you trust God today to meet my needs, trust Jesus' advice on money rather than my financial planners. Mind you, the Royal Commission has just shown us that was probably a smart strategy all along, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, trust Jesus for my money rather than myself or my accountant or my dad or my financial planner. Are you sure? Trust Jesus for my sexuality rather than my own desires, my yearnings, my loneliness, my desire to be loved. Are you sure? I'll trust Jesus to get me into heaven one day. But, but today, in my marriage, my parenting, in my grief, in my loss, Satan gets in us into our ears and into our minds and says, no, no, you can't. Sure, Satan doesn't mind if we trust God for some undefined event in the future as long as we don't trust God today because if I don't trust God today, I'm not going to know his abundant blessings now. I'm not actually going to live with him in any meaningful way. And that's his strategy, right? That's his strategy. Satan, as Dallas Willard says, hooks us by deceiving us and leading us into all these foolish ways of thinking about our desires, to dominate others, to look good, to enjoy what our body cries out for. These become preeminent in our minds, the driving force in our behavior, and the source of so much evil in the world. The source of so much evil in the world. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, the answer is to fill our minds with God. To set our minds on God. To understand the structure of this kind of satanically inspired thought and reject it. To fill our minds with the Word of God, as Jesus did. He showed us, how do you fight Satan? Well, it's by thinking God's thoughts after him, feeling God's feelings after him about you and about each other and about the world. And it's a fight. This is what Paul, this is uh, how Willard expresses it. If we're ex to experience a life without lack as we go out into the world every day, we must by the grace of God, deal with these fears or we're going to be in bondage to Satan. I don't know if you've thought about that. To the extent that you and I are actually in bondage to Satan because we're thinking... Well, we're not thinking... We're, we're, we're captive to our fears about making our lives work. We will be bound both in terms of fear and the temptation to meet our needs in a way that is not right before God, which reveals our lack of faith in Him and our lack of trust in his all-sufficient care and strength. Oh, that's it, hey? 
we are to, as the Apostle Paul says, take every thought captive for Christ. We're to fill our minds. Paul says in Romans 12, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what changes us as we see the world the way God does. That's it. That's why... That's why scripture is absolutely central in our own devotional life. That's why you've got to memorize. You don't have to. It's so helpful to memorize scripture. It's so helpful to train yourself to think theologically about the way the world works. You cannot overcome the still of false beliefs, images, and feelings, the very things that rob us of knowing the life without lack, except by the power of God. This power comes to those who have been trained to keep their minds on God. In Paul's words, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. And And it doesn't come naturally. We've got to train ourselves to do that. That's the point of the spiritual disciplines. Work out for our brains, for our minds, for our patterns of thought. This involves coming to think about God as Jesus thought about him and to trust God as Jesus trusted him. Moving from having faith in Jesus to having the faith of Jesus. Right? That's how I live in the world, with the faith of Jesus. To do so is to know the life without lack. So next week, we'll start to unpack what the faith of Jesus looks like. But right now, I want to I say to you will, you, will you turn your mind to God and will you ask God to give you his grace and power to turn your mind to him moment by moment for the rest of this week? Just to say, fill your mind with God, with God's vision for the world. I, I'll, I'll give you a little, here's a little thing you can do to help you with that. Um, take a Bible verse, pick a Bible verse that you love. Maybe if, if you're struggling with a favorite Bible verse, take John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's a Bible verse for you. And uh, set a timer on your, on your phone or your watch. And every hour, have it ping. And every hour when it pings, think about that Bible verse and ask God to show you how much he loves you how precious and wonderful you are and how precious and wonderful everyone around you is. You could be in the middle of a meeting. People are behaving badly. Your deal's going pear-shaped. There's conflict all around. And, oh, it's 10 o'clock. Take five seconds to think about how much God loves everybody around you and how much God loves you and how much you have an eternity of glory and joy with him. And then open your eyes and you know, you'll have been stabbed in the back three times, but it won't matter. And just do that every, do that on the hour, every hour. There's just a simple, and, and the, the last 2,000 years of church history are full of other wonderful little disciplines to help us fill our minds with God. How about that, hey? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you showed us with great clarity how to defeat Satan to have our minds full of Scripture, full of the Word of God, so we can think about God, we can feel about the world the way God feels, we can think about the world the way God thinks, and then we can behave in the world just the way you did, Jesus. And I pray for our church, I pray for everyone sitting here, that this week, in ways that we haven't known yet, as we stand against Satan and his strategies in our lives, 
we will experience a little more of the abundance of life with you as our great shepherd. And uh, so, Lord, fill us. Fill us to overflowing with your fullness so that we can shine as lights in this world for your glory. And in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. Let's get our wonderful band up. And gosh, didn't they sound 